Alright, you're on. Okay. <laughs> yeah, you have been. Let's let's have a prayer time for the Sunday school. Father, I thank you for Lord just those that are workers, those that are ministers there and for the, the ears and the eyes and the hearts of the young people, Lord, that um, there's nothing too difficult for you that you deposit your revelation of who you are, uh, truths about who you are to young hearts. And so we ask that, Father, that uh, your power of your Spirit would visit upstairs and be with them, or that they would be enriched by the knowledge of you in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Okay, I can be seated. <clears throat> well, thanks everyone for coming. Uh, it's great to see such a full house. Um, I, I have kind of been wrestling with this message for about two or three weeks. It... Um, it's one I, I really feel um, compelled to give, uh, and it, it in a sense comes out of a number of the messages that we've had over the past year. So, um, in some way, I'm hoping that I can kind of bring some more understanding about um, the things God's been speaking to, at least me, and I think as well as the rest of us as a body. Um, I'm not the note taker that Bill is, and Carla is, Lisa is. Some people are really good about note taking, so um, I won't give credit to all wherever the credits do. But the messages that I remember are particularly are Rogers. For a year now, we've heard about the the, the law, the Ten Commandments, and then I think his final message concerning that thing was our response to all those ten messages. What is our response to the law? Um, and then um, Tim Gerganus gave a really good message on the promises of God, um, how they're to encourage us. And many of those promises that he talked about, at least four or five of them, came out of Romans 8. He referred to a number of them that came out of that particular um, part of the Bible. And then Randy gave this message about hope. Um, Hope as an anchor. Uh, one of the scriptures I think, Randy, you used was this one. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. God desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, with an oath. It's impossible for God to lie. We who have taken refuge would have strong encouraged to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, one which enters within the veil. And so there's this whole thing about hope and promises and the law. Greg's message uh, last week dealt with a living hope. And so these things keep popping up. And so, you know, I'm scratching my head and thinking to, to myself, 
what, what are you really trying to say to us as a body right now? How do these things that we have been hearing about, the law and the promises and hope, how does that all fit together? Do they coexist in our life? Should they coexist in our life? Or should they not? Um, and what, what place do they have? So I, I really want to try to talk about that, and I'm, I'm, I'm going to try to use Romans 7 and 8 to do that. Um, I wish that when you left here, those two chapters would be as clear as a bell, and you'd have perfect understanding, but um, I'm not holding out a lot of hope for that because the one speaking doesn't have it. After many, many hours of, of looking and reading and rereading these, um, so, and the reason I bring this up is because there is the law, and we are conditioned by the law, and I, I, I look at my own life at times, and I'm thinking, why, why are you doing, why why'd you think that, why, why'd you do that again, what, what is it about you that you can't seem to overcome this thing, and and then that reflects a lot of times on how I relate to God. It's not supposed to in one sense, and yet in another sense it should. And so um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a little bit conflicted inside when I see that my walk doesn't really line up in a full measure like it should. And so I, I feel like the Lord really wants to encourage us in this area that that, you know, we're looking at these things properly. And so I want to talk about that a little bit. And so I'm going to read part of Romans 7. I'm going to start in 7.14 and read to 8.17. I didn't give you all a very long assignment because actually I've been reading Romans 5 through 8, um, which only takes about 15 minutes unless you read it out loud, then it's about 21 minutes. So Maybe the wise thing to do is just read that part to you, 5 through 8. But um, we're going to look at a selected part and then drill down on the one, really just one point I feel like the Lord really wants to make. So let's start in uh, Romans seven fourteen and read through eight seventeen. I'm going to be reading out of my new commentary. Um, I was showing somebody my new commentary, which um, normally I read the New American Standard because that's really translated really accurately. This new commentary is the New Living Translation, which is a little bit easier to understand. Um, so if I could find another one that's easier than this, I would probably move to it as well. So um, this may sound a little bit different, um, but bear with me. Maybe you'll see something differently by, by this particular translation. Romans seven fourteen. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I don't want to for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me 
That is in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I've discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart. But there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God the answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is? In my mind, I really want to obey God's law. But because of my sinful nature, I am a slave to sin. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead... Follow the Spirit. Those who are dominated by the sinful nature think about sinful things. But those who are controlled by the Holy Spirit think about things that please the Spirit. So letting your sinful nature control your mind leads to death. But letting the Spirit control your mind leads to life and peace. For the sinful nature is always hostile to God. It never did obey God's laws, and it never will. That's why those who are still under the control of their sinful nature can never please God. But you are not controlled by your sinful nature. You are controlled by the Spirit, if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to Him at all. And Christ lives within you, so even though your body will die because of sin, the Spirit gives you life because you have been made right with God. The Spirit of God, who raised Jesus from the dead, lives in you. And just as God raised Jesus Christ from the dead, He will give life to your mortal bodies by this same Spirit living within you. Therefore, Dear brothers and sisters, you have no obligation to do what your sinful nature urges you to do. For if you live by its dictates, you will die. But if through the power of the Spirit you put to death the deeds of your sinful nature, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. So you have not received a spirit that makes you fearful slaves. Instead, you received God's Spirit when He adopted you 
as his own children. Now we call him Abba Father, for his spirit joins with our spirit to affirm that we are God's children. And since we are his children, we are his heirs. In fact, together with Christ, we are heirs of God's glory. But if we are to share his glory, we must also share his suffering. Yeah, after that, I need some water. <laughs> So, I don't know if you've ever thought about it in any depth, but there's a statement that he starts out with called, For the law, for we know that the law is spiritual. Have you ever really thought about that? What in the world does that mean, that the law is spiritual? Because it's important that we understand and believe that the law is spiritual. Um, I mean, it's written down. We know what it is. It's right here. It, it operates in the world we live in every day. Um, it's there to show us our shortcomings. How can it be spiritual? Well, consider where it came from. It came out of eternity into time. It came from a spiritual being other than us into a natural thing, into the hearing of our ears. It came by the finger of God coming out of eternity, out of a place where there's no time, into time and inscribing that law on tablets of stone. So, since it's come there uh, from the Spirit, it's interesting because this particular verse doesn't just stop there. I, I was reading something, I don't know, it's probably three or four years ago, was some psychology paper, so you can take it for what it's worth. But research shows that um, um, humans' inclination is to actually not do or not want to do any statement that starts with do not or you shall not. It's, it's our nature. It's, it's inbred in us. Um, so... God's really smart. He started a lot of them by, you shall not. Because he has a purpose for it, right? He had a purpose for it. Um, So Paul, he begins to wrestle with this inconsistency that the law is spiritual. And then that verse continues, says, but I am of flesh, sold into the bondage of sin. I mean, so there's this thing that's been given to us that's unlike us. It's spiritual. And then there's us of flesh sold into this place of captivity called sin. So it's interesting when you start reading this and you look at Paul almost like talking out loud to himself. I'm going to read these verses again. So the trouble is not with the law for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me for I am all too human a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself. I hope y'all don't mind hearing this a couple times. Because I've read this maybe 20 times. Still working on it. Still working on it. I don't really understand myself. For I want to do what is right. But I don't do it. Instead, this is Paul. Paul is saying this. Now we'll get into who was Paul in the in, in the writing of this in a minute. But 
I don't really understand myself for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that I am doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. But if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. Now, what's interesting to me, it's almost like Paul is reflecting on this struggle in his life. And then he turns right around and basically says the same thing again, like, I really can't believe that I'm like this. Because you go from 17 to 18, and he basically says the same thing again. And I know that nothing good lives in me, that is, in my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. But if I don't do, if I, but if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. So it's like, I see this, but I don't really believe it. And then he says it again. So we understand and believe that the law is good. We believe it's spiritual. We believe that it's from another realm. But my flesh is in bondage to sin. At least until the power of Christ is given. The law is not the problem. My flesh is the problem. I mean, a lot of times, I don't know about you, but you start talking about politics or whatever you talk about in the, the question behind it is, what's wrong with the world? What is wrong with the world that we live in? And I, I, I came across this, this thing where um, a while back, a long while back, um, this uh, newspaper editor sent out this question to a, a bunch of um, famous people in England. Uh, and the question was, what is wrong with the world? And one of them, you may or may not be familiar with him, but he writes this letter back. Dear Sir, I am yours, G.K. Chesterton. Now, G.K. Chesterton was a uh, kind of a, a lay, lay theologian. He was a, um, a, a poet uh, and, and wrote lots of things that uh, are kind of paradoxical. Um, I, I wrote down a couple of them here. Um, he was mid mid 1800s, and here's a couple of them. The traveler sees what he sees. The tourist sees what he has come to see. Take that home and think about it. The Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It has been found difficult and left untried. So. G.K. Chesterton, he, he's a thinker, and um, I think he's he, he understands what's wrong with the world. Um, you know, it's a challenging challenging times we live at in in our own country, and I know I've probably said this before from up here, but what's wrong with the United States? Um, the church. Yeah. <laughs> if my people, who are called by my name, will repent. He promises to heal the land. But, yeah, I want to point at somebody else. But I need to repent. I need to pray and I need to ask. And 
there's no better time than right now to be praying for this nation. Uh, so that's part of what's wrong with the nation. Is the church has lost its voice. Uh, we've lost a lot of the power and influence that we had years ago. And so, how do we get that back? We repent. We repent. We, we, we become the church again. The church God's called us to. Um, so, a lot of people, there's so, there's so much controversy about this scripture here because um, you can figure out what side you want to come down on. Was Paul a Pharisee? Was he basically an unbeliever when this was written? Or was he an apostle? Um, there are notable people that say that this scripture is for people that are unsaved and chapter 8 is for those that are saved. There, there are other people who say, no, um, that's not the case. He's speaking about who he was as an apostle. And I really have to come down on that side because if you don't, a lot of us are disqualified in the rest of the, the rest of the verses because we're struggling with sin. It still has some power over us, right? Um, Martin Lloyd Jones, um, who I was telling the guys at the meeting uh, a while back, I, I told you wrong. He, in, between uh, ch- chapters five and eight, he spoke. He he had 144 sermons out of that. I thought you left out some. Yeah. I told them 44, so it was 144. Um, you're not going to get that many from me. I'm doing well to just to, to give you kind of a, let's just fly over these two chapters and take a look at what the Lord, what I feel like the Lord is trying to speak to us today. But here's what he said. He says, trying to discern that the man of Romans 7, whether Paul was a believer or unbeliever in that time, whether he was regenerate or unregenerate, that's a distraction. One that misses the Christian experience a believer should be seeking. The main point of Romans 7 was to dramatically illustrate what happens if you seek sanctification apart from the Spirit. Amen. And that's my point today. If you seek sanctification apart from the Spirit through the law, No matter who you are, if you seek sanctification this way, it will slay you. Paul had already proven justification through the law is impossible. Now he seeks to prove the same with sanctification. So this is the the real point that I, I really feel like the Lord's calling us to as a people and as a church, at least this body here. And the question is, how are you seeking your sanctification? How are you, how are you being conformed to the image to, to be a reflection of Jesus Christ? How are you growing in the full measure of, of who he's calling us to be? Um, Paul phrased it this way. Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Do you and I sometimes, do we kind of gauge where our relationship with God is, how well we're obeying the Ten Commandments? We do. I mean, it may not be conscious, but we lapse into it. Uh, and I, I think it's one of those things that, for me, I've got to revisit 
the basis of my relationship with God and the basis of why I'm living because sanctification is by faith as well. Um, let, let's just look at a couple things. I want to look at the law and I want to look at sin out of these particular things. Romans 5.20 says this, God's law was given so that all people could see how sinful they were. That's the purpose of the law. The power of the law is that it exposes sin. The power of the law is that it condemns everybody. Everybody, because everybody sins. The power of the law is that it reveals that a person is in desperate need of another way. Another way of appeal to be in right standing with an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present, all-present God. The powerlessness of the law is that it is totally ineffective and inefficient to save anyone. Does that mean that it's not good? I mean, that's what Paul says. No, it absolutely does not mean it's not good. We've already agreed that the law is good, that it's holy, righteous, and good. That's what the scripture says about it. But it tells us that the weakness is in our flesh, our, our nature. Um, it's, it is spiritual. It's from eternity. It's outside this world. But... We're of the flesh. Continuing in um, Romans 5, when Adam sinned, sin entered the world. Adam's sin brought death, so death spread to everyone, for everyone sinned. Skipping down from 12 to 17, uh, says, for sin, for the sin of this one man, Adam, caused death to rule over many. So, Adam's disobedience led many into disobedience. Adam's sin led many into condemnation. Adam's sin brought all mankind under the slavery or bondage of sin. Now, so we know the power of the, of the law is... It's used to bring us to a place of realizing there's got to be another way or there's going to be no peace with God. The power of the law is it condemns me. Now, let's look at sin for a minute. Because the Bible speaks about sin as well. It is both also powerful and powerless. Uh, it's powerful enough to hold mankind captive in sin to a point it's power enough to deceive mankind it's powerful enough to to take something that's good and use it for evil these are things that the bible teaches us about that how sinful is sin romans 7 11 sin took advantage of those commandments and deceived me it used the commandments to kill me, but still the law itself is holy and its commandments are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. 
Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. So we can see how terrible sin really is. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. Sin is really sinful. When sin has the power to take something good and use it to condemn you. I mean, how many things do you know that are good that you can use to put somebody in a bad light? Sin is really sinful. And it's pervasive. But it loses its power when three things work together. The grace of God the blood or sacrifice of Christ and the faith of a believer. I'm going to read four verses. Um, Romans 4.25 and 5.1. You can't read 5.1 if you don't read 4.25. And 6.6 and 7.4. So please bear with me. I'm skipping around, but um, there's just so much there. I'm just trying to pull out what we need to understand about what we're about today. Jesus was handed over to die because of our sins, and he was raised to life to make us right with God. Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. We know that our old sinful selves were crucified with Christ so that sin might lose its power in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. For when we died with Christ, we were set free from the power of sin. Now, Baptism is a whole lot more than you think it is. Baptism is a faith, external thing of a faith of something that you don't see, but you believe is true. You died with Christ and were set free from the power of sin. And then 7 4 says this So, my dear brothers and sisters, this is the point. You died to the power of the law when you died with Christ. And now you are united with one who was raised from the dead. As a result, we can produce a harvest of good deeds for God. Now, that's interesting. We're set free from the power of sin. And we've died to the power of the law. You have to think about that. You have to believe that. If you're ever going to walk in sanctification by faith, you've died to the power of the law. So, what's your motive for obeying the law? And is the law still a part of your life? It is. But, Paul does this reverse in, in, in chapter 8 and says, he doesn't say you have to obey the law. He says, you have no obligation to obey the urges of the power of the flesh. It's kind of the same thing. Because if, if you're a child of God and you're led of the Spirit, are you going to obey the law? Yes. You are going to obey the law. 
But the law has no power to condemn you if you've died to it. Now you need to think about this. I'm still thinking about it. How are you living your life? Are you relating to God through the power of life? And, oh yeah, I know, I'm saved by grace. But then we turn around and it's like we try to make up for those sins that we didn't do, the sin within us. And so we did them. Now, to me, this whole thing is a little bit of a mind game. Okay, I'm really not doing those things. Something else that just works in me is doing it. I mean, that one is really, really hard to kind of understand, and I can't explain it. To me, it's this great mystery of how gracious God is, that he can look down and say, you're acquitted, even though I continue to find myself in certain areas of thought or the way I react to things or whatever, I'm still doing those things. But Paul's saying... No, in those particular areas, the sin that's in your flesh is what you're yielding to. You have the power through the grace of God to choose not to do that. And that's what, that's what the urging of, of Paul is saying is when you see that thing, we're to put that to death. You know, but that's the amazing thing about the atoning blood of Christ. You know, yes, it made us right with God by his righteousness, but it continues to make us right. Even when we walk in these places uh, of these particular things that it seems like we all have our struggles in certain areas. At least I do. Maybe you all are looking at me saying, wow, he has got some ways to grow. But um and then we, it's our, it's our performance then is how we try to relate to God. When there's no condemnation. That's the, the, that, that power that the law has to condemn us is not there. And so the motive, the motive for living is by faith. The just shall live by faith. You accept your justification by faith. And you have to walk with God in this place of being conformed to his image by faith. It's like when we try to do that and, and look, I don't understand how sometimes we're in the flesh when we're trying to be good. And other times we, the grace of God. Wow, I went through that thing. You know, it's the grace of God. Um, here's one you can take home and think about. I just thought of this one this morning. Is it possible to still do dead works after you believe? Absolutely. Because whatever's not of faith is sin. And if you're trying to do this stuff in the power of the flesh, whatever it is you're doing, it's just a dead work. That's kind of scary to me. Because, you know, when, when we do get up there, I hope there's enough jewels to throw before the Lord you know, of, of things that were really fruitful for him. But I just feel like this is that area that the Lord is challenging me to remember. It's a walk of faith. And a walk of faith is a walk of dependency. Oh, here are the rules. I know what I'm supposed to do. 
Um, okay, I'll get back with you if I'm having problems with it. That's not what he's called us to. He's called us to a relationship. It's not only in the cool of the day. It's the morning and in our sleep. The Lord really wants us to walk in a relationship where we're depending on Him. I, I need you. I think one of one used to be one of my prayers. I need to re re um, re-energize this one. Is I need you every hour. I need you every hour, and to, and not just to say it because it sounds good, but it's true. It's true because left to myself, the power of sin is going to um, find a way. It's kind of like a computer virus. It's been with us since birth. You know, and it's there and it will take advantage of any time that our mind is not set on things above. You know, that's where the choice is. We have the choice. We like, like we just read, you can set your mind on earthly things or you can set your mind on, on the things of the Spirit. Um, and so I, I just really feel like the Lord wants us to come out from under this gauging our life by how well we keep the law. Now, we're obligated to crucify the deeds of the flesh. But in doing that, you see, the, the focus is not on keeping the law. It's on dealing with this, this warfare that's still going on. I mean, you know, 8 goes on and talks about the creation is groaning. But it also talks about us groaning because of this body that we have, that we want to be rid of this thing that doesn't do what we want it to do. And so I just feel like this is one of those things that the Lord really wants to encourage us in. It's a walk of faith. It's a walk by the Spirit. It's a walk of dependency on Him. It's amazing to me that the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God, the Holy Spirit, can be quenched by me. We, but we run over the Holy Spirit. So many times that we don't even realize it. That is beyond me. That's a humility that I don't understand of the Godhead. Um, two more verses and a short story. Hopefully this will encourage you. Romans 8.23 And we believers also groan even though we have the Holy Spirit within us as a foretaste of future glory. For we long for our bodies to be released from sin and suffering. We too wait with eager hope for the day when God will give us our full rights as His adopted children, including the new bodies He has promised us. We were giving this hope when we were saved. Greg's one of Greg's scriptures last week was out of first Peter chapter one. There's this one is out of Second Peter chapter one. By his chapter one verses three and four. By God's divine power, he has given us everything we need for living a godly life. We have all received we have received all of this by coming to know Him. 
Second Peter 1, 3 and 4. One commentator makes this statement about Romans 7. This is, Christ is a fountain of abundant life. Knowing ourselves from Romans 7 feeds the life of faith. And faith brings joy. There was a, a, a I want to tell you a little story about a song. Uh, his name, the man's name is William Cowper. I don't know if you know him or not. Cowper was a hymn writer. He was also a secular poet. He was a popular man, and yet um, he was very depressed at times. Uh, he was born in the mid-1700s, and um, he was to be an apprentice to an attorney, and he was invited to the bar, but he didn't ever go to the bar. But he was chosen for to be a part of the clerkship of journals of the House of Lords. But when he went for the interview, he experienced a panic attack. Anybody ever have a panic attack when you're going for a job interview and you know you need a job? Well, William Cowper had a panic attack and he didn't get the job. He didn't get to become clerk. And this put him into a real time of intense depression. But out of that grew the, one of a number of songs that he and John Newton wrote together. Um, and this particular one, of all the scriptures that inspired it, out of, this one's out of Zechariah. Zechariah um, 13.1 On that day, a fountain will be opened for the dynasty of David and for the people of Jerusalem. A fountain to cleanse them from all their sins and impurity. So, some of you probably know the song, There is a Fountain. But I think it's an appropriate song for me to read the words as we prepare for the Lord's Supper. Um, I'm going to read the first verse completely through, and then the other verses I'm just going to read the, the salient part and realizing that some of it repeats. Um, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from Emmanuel's veins and sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. Lose all their guilty stains. And sinners plunged beneath that flood lose all their guilty stains. The dying thief rejoiced to see that fountain in his day. And there may I, though vile as he, wash all my sins away. Dear dying lamb, your precious blood shall never lose its power till all the ransomed church of God be saved and sin no more. Ever since by faith I saw the stream your flowing wounds supply. Redeeming love has been my theme and shall be till I die. When this poor lisping, stammering tongue lies silent in the grave, then in a nobler, sweeter song, I'll sing thy power to save. Um, 
There's no better place to start um, than the Lord's Supper. It refocuses uh, us on the price that's been paid, the basis of our faith, and the basis under which we walk every day with the Lord. And so I just encourage you uh, to let those words be uh, preparatory for a time of really, we call it communion. Communion with the presence of Jesus. There are things that say there's a means of grace. And communion is one of those things that's listed as a means of grace, which kind of always um, encourages me because grace is not something you merit. It's not something that you deserve. But there's a way to get in front of the Lord. Stand in line, maybe I should say, for grace. For grace to walk in, in sanctification, being conformed with in his likeness by faith, not by how well we keep the law. Um, that comes out of relationship and we naturally will. Our, play, our place and our responsibility, our obligation is to put to death the deeds of the flesh. It's kind of the same thing, but I love the way the Lord changes the em emphasis for us. So we're not under this power of condemnation, but we do have a warfare of, of making right those things in our life that we know are not pleasing to God. Let's pray. Lord, I'm just reminded of, oh, the precious blood of Jesus. And I'm reminded of the amazing grace that you have. I'm also reminded of your long-suffering patience as you train us up in the way we should go, as you um, continue to overshadow us with the cleansing blood of your Son. And we come before you today to recognize that, to, to remember the covenant that you've called us to, to remember the cost of what it's cost the Godhead. And we thank you, Father, for your marvelous story, for the marvelous way that you've made a way for us to be related to you, to be friends of God. In Jesus' name, amen.